Hey, music lovers, you're listening to Record Store Radio with Tom Honan. Check it out and definitely go check out a record store. You'll find new artists, new music, old music, vintage music, great stuff on CD and vinyl. The artists are counting on you. Indeed. Tom Honan here on Record Store Radio. Thanks for joining us today, where we're featuring New York City's legendary singer-songwriter Garland Jeffries, Later in the program, a quick shout-out to Nick Shelton from the Soundgarden Record Store in Syracuse, New York. Now, Garland has been creating some very important music over the decades, and many of those songs are certainly relevant today. And back in October, Garland, his wife and manager Claire, and I had a nice little visit in their apartment, and you'll hear highlights from that conversation right after we get things started with Wild in the Streets, Garland Jeffries. So Garland, 50 years of writing, recording, performing, touring around the world. My first question is, is, and I've always been curious about this, you've toured extensively in Europe and European audiences have always loved you. I wonder what that connection to the European audience has been. This New York guy goes to Europe and you seem to give them something that they're just dying for. What, what do you... How do you see that relationship? <clears throat> it's a number of things, probably. Uh, but I'll say one thing. Like, to start, Italy, you know, uh, in Spain, Claire and I, we had a great time. Uh, so, you know, the international European thing always appealed to me. Uh, I remember when I first uh, had my big hit of Matador. I think it partly did grow out of the Matador single mm-hmm. which was in 1980 79 and that was a number one number two no in various uh, what they call benelux countries you know yeah. france especially germany very popular and and so i think that made him a known entity and kathy udemans was the was the person at a&m who really 
uh, championed that record over there. And, and so that came from the uh, Jerry Moss. Jerry Moss and, and Herb Alpert. And Herb That's Alpert. That's a good team. That'll but they, support you. And they, and they were great guys. They, yeah. they were great to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I have some found some really neat photos of oh, nice. Garland and Herb and but uh, and Herb Alpert actually played on the Matador too. He right. His trumpet. So that probably didn't hurt, but uh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My Spanish Entity, then later records, like especially uh, Don't Call Me Buckwheat in 1992, after that long hiatus, people knew his name already, and then they were very receptive to the messages of Don't Call Me Buckwheat in a way that Americans at that time really weren't. Yeah, that's, that's or, an interesting point. You know. Um, can you, Garland, can, Don't Call Me Buckwheat, can you talk about how that song came about? And we've... we've Heard you talk about it in the past, but let me think about it for a second. Well, you know, I I, I hit I hit a place in in, in my music and uh, my thinking where I was probably one of the very first people to talk about race uh, so openly, actually in song as well, you know, and 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 then current musicians of color picked up on my like Vernon Reed and people like that, yep. you know, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, I'm, I guess you can call me a, co- a colored boy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, colored boy. Uh, and, uh, well, talk, talk about the incident at Shea Stadium that inspired the song. It must have been a Met game and you s- stood up. Yeah, what triggered you to come up with that song? With that phrase, what, where did that phrase come from? You stood up to... I guess go get a hot dog or something, and some guy behind you yelled out, "Hey, buckwheat, sit down." It was so jarring to you that this guy used that epithet so casually. Yeah, so it doesn't loud. seem that way right now. Somehow. <laughs> yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's exactly like but where I think, somebody would have taken that guy and clocked him in the head. Yeah, it, it's intriguing to me that you made a bigger, bigger moment out of that and turned it into a song. Yeah. 
that has taught generations now how to perhaps think about race or how to yes. deal in a situation like that. No question about it. I think I was probably the first person to really talk about race in song. This is a song about words, the power of words. Well, it all takes place in a big city with a very small Every song was about various elements of being a person of color in America. And even in the song Don't Call Me Buckwheat, uh, you used a lot of other epithets. Oh, don't call me nig, 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 nig. Don't call me Boulignon, which Boulignon, is a thing which is an Italian eggplant, yeah. Anti -Italian. You know, which is what you probably heard in Brooklyn growing up. Now, yeah. having, having said all that, now making that album <clears throat> with all of that charged subject matter how did the record label handle that how did the the promotion of that did you have a hard time with that album i or think did they some give people you didn't want me to do that yeah you know 
but uh, I was in, I was, I pretty much uh, commanded my own road, you know, like uh, I wanted to do that that way and people went along with it in a lot of ways. It was RCA. Yeah. And the office was uh, here in New York, so this must have been about 91. There was not a lot of uh, support for the record in America. I can't imagine the it would label be. Yeah. at that time. And if you recall, the head of RCA at that time, he ended up not very long after the release of the album going back to Nashville. And it was our takeaway that that an album like this wasn't really something that was in his wheelhouse, if you want to use that phrase. I, we never specifically heard anything like, oh, they don't support this record because it's about race. But there wasn't a big, uh, by any means, was there any big push push to get this album out. And they printed very few copies, very few copies in America. However, back to Europe, back to Europe, (laughs) there was a fellow whose name was Heinz Henn, who actually signed Garland to BMG slash RCA. And in Europe, Heinz Hen was your champion, and he got behind the record. And what he did was he sent Garland around to every territory in Europe, and Garland pitched the record directly to the sales forces. And what he did was he had a, a blown-up uh, photo of himself as a little kid in front of Ebbets Field, <laughs> Who's going to say no to that, On the day that Jackie Robinson (laughs) broke the color line, and there's Garland. So he's, he's, you know, he's standing and he's talking to all these Germans and Belgians and Swiss and anybody, and basically saying, this is my story, this is my background. And of course, as a European, that kind of a story is so quintessentially American that they, they really embraced it. And that album sold many, many, many more copies in Europe back in the day when people still bought CDs and and vinyl. But that's what was, that's why that record, and that record in Europe spawned another radio hit, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, Mm -hmm. which is also, as you know, about the line, big yellow taxi cab passed me by, stopped on the corner to pick up a white, stopped on the next corner to pick up a white guy. And I think that. That song also, it had a sort of a hip-hop feel to it, but it, it also really appealed to Europeans because I think Europeans, this is a bit of a cliche, but wouldn't you say that they always appreciate songs that are, have a message? Rock and roll. 
music is allowed to have a message. Well, I think that the bottom line is that Europeans are sophisticated. Yeah, more sophisticated. And and, and more sensitive, you know, and when... uh, when they're hearing music, you know, they're, they're, they're music lovers and music, um, they, they listen. Well, and, and I think with your music, with your kind of music, people have to listen. There's, there's words, <clears throat> there's messages, there's nuance, there's, there's certain words that you have to grasp. You have to sit and listen. It's not something in the background yeah. and you can't just dismiss it. You have yeah. to be engaged. It's, yeah, yeah, girl. And, 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 and that leads me to another thing. When I was looking at... Um, a lot of your videos and and now I'm thinking okay you're listening to music there's a message in the music but then the what what your music has always been great at is creating imagery mm. and uh, in, in addition to the message so the images in the videos um, it is fascinating to see the the, the neighborhoods <laughs> and the detail I mean the de- the, the street signs and the the shadows on the sidewalk there's it looks like it's all done purposely (laughs) and so i'm wondering what your process has always been when you are creating a video do you have this image in your head that it's supposed to look certain ways and then all of a sudden that image is now on the screen i'm I'm just really expressing myself it's not that complicated you know it's you know things that have always uh come into me and be part of my uh, my point of view and uh, I definitely uh, over the years uh, in, in the early years felt like uh, you know people of color you know paid a price you know and continue to pay a price you know and uh, and it uh, disturbed me it's really uh, my story, uh, and, and and I uh, I look back and I and I think back in a way. It's still going on, you know. It's an ongoing horror. I think. Well, it is all true, but I'm I'm just impressed as well that you take those feelings and what comes into you, as you say, and translate that into a visual that actually, if you're really watching and have your mind opened. You, you're feeling something. You're looking mm-hmm. at these neighborhoods mm-hmm. and the people that are coming and going in the videos and, and your attention to detail in the writing and the imagery is taking what you're feeling and the rest of us, you've, you've taught us how to look at that and feel it as well. And I think that's just using video as, as the real purpose that it, it was intended to be. Um, you've, it, it's moving to see some of these things. It really is. I wanted to show you this, which is a photo that um, Anton Corbein <laughs> took on the day that they were shooting the Hail Hell Rock and Roll video in Harlem. Wow, that and is awesome. This Dash of cello <laughs> was actually just, remember, I wasn't there again, the but from lines. what I hear, it was just Anton Corbein shot yeah, yeah, but I mean, the guy was just a street guy. He wasn't in the video or anything, but yeah. But that 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 tells me a lot. That's an image. Yeah, that's sure just a beautiful and, image. And it's just you know, it's everything is here. This guy, he almost looks like he's a almost New looks like a, a, a New Orleans or a cardboard cutout. Almost, yeah. he's just very a dash of soul. Yeah, actually, but he's dignified at the same I time. I looked it yeah. up. Was a uh, was a restaurant. And it doesn't exist anymore. Wow, what a moment! It, it may have even been closed then, but I just 
treasure this photograph more and more because it's it, a brilliant photo. He the, yeah. he's on he did that one of those videos and he's such a he's Well, a, that's a great eye and that was my that was what I was getting he's at. He's effortless. Yeah. A lot of it, it in in the videos you know, certainly Garland would collaborate with the director, but a lot of it was just the director's interpretation of mm-hmm. The song and because um, the, the the videos tend to they're almost like little movies. Yeah, you yeah. know it's a three minute movie and yeah. it captures a lot and That's, there's a whole story and you expect to yeah to almost see more. But well, I, I I was really fortunate to meet Anton Corbin because he uh, he took my music and gave it something more you know yeah. and uh, consequently fed me to produce more. Oh, I bet it kind of upped everybody's game. Yeah. You know, now how how then did you decide which song would be translated into a video? I mean, you have so many songs. How did you? <laughs> I don't know. How did you that's, figure something that's was so an important? Interesting question. I think that maybe in the case of that video and some other videos. Well, I, you know, for example, I would like to make this. We've thought about this many times. The Dash of Soul should be a video. Or an album. Or an album. Sure, that's that's an album cover. You already got the cover. Exactly. (laughs) But, because Anton's done, I guess, two album covers, right? Yeah. But, um, no, I think in certain cases, the video, what song you make a video out of is driven by the label's uh, budgetary concerns. In other words... Unless you're the label. Yeah, like, we'll like get, we are now. But that's you're another your own label, then you can decide what you want. <laughs> but no, I think that the uh, in the case of Hail Hill Rock and Roll, the, the label financed that that mm-hmm. video for sure because Anton was already a not a uh, budget budget kind of a videographer. Let's put it that way. So so yeah, they they did that, and then any other. Videos, I think, were also probably driven by what the label thought was deserving of which which tune was deserving of the most mm-hmm. uh, budget. Similar question has to do with um, being in the studio recording music. How I'm, I'm kind of a process kind of guy. I like to see how things work. And so, how when you decide to do an album, you've been writing songs, you have a pile of songs. How does how does it work from that point to you have a sound in your head? Do you get some bandmates together? Do you get a producer? Who decides now how that's all going to sound? I have to really think it through. Mm-hmm. You know, be prepared for it. And what's involved in that preparation? Kind of, you know, it could be as simple. It could be very simple, just in terms of starting. You know, because it has to, it obviously has to start, and uh, it has to. Uh, sometimes there's a few phrases, or and that kicks off. Your idea, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're uh, playing the guitar will get me somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, like it's time, it's really time to make a new album. It would be great. I think there's people that would like you to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. If you don't mind, I can speak to that a little sure, bit no, more. Um, having been a an observer of Garland's <laughs> process for many years. Um, <laughs> I think his general procedure is that he'll he'll be writing and not I think only in in Don't Call Me Buckwheat was there a so-called theme. Although actually Guts for Love was kind of 
a love-themed album. Mm. Um, but certainly Don't Call Me Buckwheat was very focused and so unusual for him. He would go up to the Schomburg Library and do some research just to sort of steep himself mm -hmm. in the larger, as opposed to the personal ideas. And then with that album, that was also unusual because you worked so closely with Joe Monona with a lot of pre-production at this this fellow who was a He's multi, a good guy. He's, Joe was great. You know yeah. him? Yeah. Okay, so they did a lot of work in advance and Joe did a lot of the arranging and so that so that album was very Joe dense. was a real partner mm -hmm. yeah. to, to, to that album. Yeah, he was very involved and um, so that was interesting and then you know, every album's been different, but I think in terms of getting the songs together, Garland works, I don't have it handy, but he does everything on cassettes. Cassettes, Tom. I'm gonna No, I'm hearing you, because you could probably just play it right back and, you know, no, it's your Tom, comfort No, Tom, you can't zone. just play it right back, because you can never find the thing that you recorded last week because it's on a cassette that's lying around oh that kind of organizational <laughs> preparation okay tom that is he not... knows his own system come well, on he knows where it is i don't know tom let well, me put it this way let me tell you that on the hey last... there could be some valuable cassettes around here there Let's start are looking. cassettes the everywhere garland's lost cassettes there are cassettes everywhere and that's you should show them honey. that's the new I, record i will show <laughs> you can find them. I, I can find uh, i can find them so so what <laughs> what the process for the last, certainly for the last three records that we did ourselves, was a question of finding the cassette with the song or song portions, <laughs> snippets are snippets. what we call them. So there are written snippets and recorded snippets. So someone... Someone, Tom. Someone, Tom. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess, a, Claire. It's a snippet affair. It's a snippet affair. There you go. So somebody has to organize the snippets and I think it's called sampling now. I think that's yeah. what you're doing. Well, okay. it, we are doing sampling in the crudest <laughs> sense. So I'll find this, and then we'll say, "Oh, there's that." There will actually be an iteration of either most of the song or a complete song. And Garland sometimes works with Alan Friedman mm -hmm. to do some arranging and shaping of songs prior to going into the studio. So I'd say on the last three albums, they were all done that way. Finding the pieces, coalescing them, uh, getting the lyrics refined, and then generally going into the studio pretty quickly, not, not spending a lot of time in the studio, correct? Yeah. And, and so now you have a, like a guy named James Maddock was in the studio. Yes, James Maddock is very good. How did that come about and well, what was his role? that was interesting. That came about in the Truth Serum record. We were recording that at Brooklyn Recording. And James was there, I guess, to do some guitar parts. Yeah, probably. And then um, he, he sort of saw, I think, a time in the recording process where he could be of assistance so he kind of stepped in mm -hmm. and started to give ideas and shape some of the production and it happened very organically and then he was really adding a lot and one thing he's very good at which we also used him extensively on the the, the last album yeah. 14 steps he's very good at getting a good vocal performance out of garland and both of these studios are very good at recording vocals 
And as a matter of fact, the 14 Steps to Harlem album, some, somebody told. So James is really good at that, and he's also a very uh, good guitarist that is not so obvious, but he's a really good guitarist. So he, he sort of got involved in those last two records in, in an organic way, coming out of being in the studio for Truth Serum. It wasn't even like we, we said, oh, please come and co-produce this album. It was just, it just happened like oh, that. Oh, wow, that's a beautiful, that's the way yeah, to do it. And, yeah, and he, um, and he really gets Garland. He really appreciates mm-hmm. him, and he uh, he's now doing good a, friends. Well, yeah, well, yeah, really, well, good, really friends. good friends. And, and they did a little tour together in the UK, and they did a bunch of those light of day shows. Fourteen steps to Harlem. Fourteen steps. Daddy take the train to the 125 early in the morning. You get on the train and you bring it on home. Mama worked in a sugar factory. Domino was the name. Take the one, two, five. Daddy's home by six o'clock. Do it every day. Which in way? Fourteen steps to Harlem. Doing everything. Fourteen steps. Early in the morning. And James is now doing uh, New York Skyline in his set. Yeah, well, he did it at the City Winery, mm-hmm, your, the big mm-hmm. birthday bash thing. Yeah. And he's been yeah. doing it ever since in his yeah. own shows. Oh, that's it's a beautiful really, song. really nice. And that actually is, I'm glad you said that, because my, my next question is about your actual songwriting. And one of the things I am always struck by is your ability to observe detail that's out there. Um, you know, 22 steps to the city, 14 steps to Harlem. There's detail in there. You know, like nothing gets past you, but you can take these details and incorporate them into a bigger image. So I'm wondering, what is your songwriting process all about? Do you? It's very interesting you say that because it's uh, it's often it has often been a literal translation to my thoughts, like. Uh, 14 steps to Harlem. I mean, my, my father was from Harlem. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, he was my stepfather, actually. You know, and, uh, but he worked in Harlem. He worked hard. And and I think I, that comes across in your writing. You've, yeah. You've written about how hard he works and the, yeah. the influence he's had on you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to <laughs> get a little bit of your thoughts on your, your time in Syracuse. In Syracuse, the Cuse. The Cuse. <laughs> the Cuse, the cold weather Cuse. Well, here's the thing. 
I would like to go back to Syracuse sometime soon. Mm-hmm. And Love we'll to have you up threatening there. to go over there and then go to Niagara Falls. Beautiful. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but your time at Syracuse University, how did that influence you going forward in your career? Did anybody there influence you? Well, in my development, you know, when I wanted, I met Lou Reed up there. Yeah, he was that, that classmate. Was, you know, uh, we were friends. We were buddies. We were, you know, and uh, and consequently, Laurie Anderson said that that Lou passed away. You know, really sad. Yeah, he's and, a good uh, man, good friend he, of yours. He was a great guy. Misunderstood. Yes, for a day. Uh, but a terrific guy. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that patient. Said, "Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side." I said, "Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side." And the colored girls say, "Do do 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 Syracuse, there was a guy named Delmore Schwartz. Yeah, Delmore. Yeah. He's not alive either. Yeah. What was his influence on you? How did you... Well, I would hang around with Lou and Delmore. Mm-hmm. Delmore and Lou were very t- tight because they were poets. Yeah. And then there's Lori. How wonderful she is. <clears throat> she survived it all. You know, and... Uh, with a lot of grace and dignity. Really. Uh, she, she, she's really one of the more remarkable people around, period. Yeah, she's a good human being and just so creative. Claire, Claire knows her, and, and uh, she's a lovely person. What was your major up there? What did you study in Syracuse? I guess the history of art and the Renaissance, uh-huh. right? So well, in a that's way, that's good grounding. You know, but yeah. you see, good. that's the part you always leave out, which is yeah, you're a Renaissance man. <laughs> you you got to go to Italy. I went to Italy because uh, you were at Syracuse as a as a college student. I lived in Flo- I, I was living in Florence at a, a period of time, and then I. Uh, you will always say that as a result of going to Italy, you've. Garland actually went to the director of the program because they rejected him. It Whoa. was an art history program for a, a year, I believe, abroad in, yeah. in Florence where Syracuse had a long-established program. Very unusual. And they rejected him. And he professor, went to... The, 
Professor Fleming. And he went to Professor Fleming and said, why are you rejecting me? I have the recommendation. I have the grades. And he thought it was a racial thing. And they then they let him go. Wow. So he did get to go. And he did Good have a transformative up. experience in Europe, which totally opened his eyes up to what then happened later, which was a successful career in Europe. And it's doubtful that you would have even had a successful career in Europe had you not had that experience in Italy. So in many ways, your experience in Syracuse, although it didn't impact your songwriting, it impacted your worldview tremendously. Because as you often said, most kids from his neighborhood in Brooklyn not only weren't going to college, but they, they weren't, weren't going to Italy. Yeah, they weren't going for to Italy a year, for sure. on a on a ferry and and on a the Queen Elizabeth and you know stopping in Marrakesh and whatever else crazy stuff you did, you know. Wow. So it you're right did in the day you. in and that went time. Space of Gibraltar. Wow, yeah, that's so amazing for it, a young man of that, that era. And especially you know? a young man who wasn't coming from money. It was a you know you were probably living on a shoestring. And they made you stay with Italian-speaking-only families. Right. And they were communists. Good way to pick up Italian. They were communists. So, I mean, both of the families he yeah. stayed with. So, so from now on, when that question is asked, that's the answer, because that is, in fact, true. It's your artistic grounding. You may have gone to another university <laughs> that didn't have a semester in Italy, and you would have never had that experience, because a lot of American artists, maybe today more so, but... In the past, there's a lot of artists that don't, they're very United States-centric. They right. don't think about Europe as a, no, as a, a, as a market. It's a big planet a, and it's a little planet. The person who made the biggest impression on me mm -hmm. is my wife. <laughs> oh, there you go. We have to get that in. <laughs> Boy, I slipped that in. Phew, got that in under the wire. He's about to turn off the mic. <laughs> yeah, we got to get that in. <laughs> well, you know, I do want to elaborate on that. But nobody has a wife like mine. God bless you, man. My wife is a wonderful person. I don't want to overstate because there are times with, that aren't so great. It makes the great times even better, though. Right? Oh, no. he's, a, he's a diplomat. This guy. He's very really good. Noticing yeah, this, really is, good. this is for the record now. Come on. Work with me. All right, a little quick segment here with Nick Shelton, who's the general manager of the Soundgarden in Syracuse, New York. It's a record store, and Nick has a few comments to make, and we'll, we'll talk about the record business. A lot of people can come into a record store, have an idea of what they're looking for, or maybe having no clue, hoping to stumble across something, discover something new. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of the role we play is turning people on to something new, something maybe they haven't heard of, or maybe something they have heard of um, and have, you know, long forgotten about, you know, rediscovering um, something from the past, not even always just something new. I think, you know, we provide a place where people can come, hang out, talk about music, and not just us, but, you know, they can talk to other customers who are here as well, you know. Like, we've had a lot of, a lot of younger people coming in, um, younger generation, um, kids anywhere from like, you know, 16 to their early 20s who, you know, they grew up on streaming downloads. And to them, the idea of a record store, instead of being something in the past, is something like exciting and new. How have your folks been holding up during the pandemic and what kind of changes have you had to make? Yeah, yeah, the pandemic uh, been rough. It's looking, you know, a lot better now, now that like, you know, here in central New York, we, you know, we're now in phase three, I think, of the reopening. So, 
you know, we're we're back open now, which is good. But while we were closed, it was it was it was pretty scary there for a minute. We tried to as much as possible shift a lot of our sales online, but we also tried to maintain you know, engagement with you know the people who come in here, you know, from social media, Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that. You know, reminding people that we're here. Um, that if there's anything we're looking for, we were still like shipping stuff out. It was slow. But we still had we had our diehards and our and our regulars still hitting us up for for the stuff they were looking for. Thanks again for listening to Record Store Radio. Join us again for the next episode that features part two of our focus on Garland Jeffries. Till then, check out a record store. You never know what you're going to find. Uh, maybe it'll be Bob Dylan's new record, Rough and Rowdy Ways, or very interestingly, Scarlett Rivera also has a brand new record, her solo project called All of Me. Keep looking for good stuff, folks, out there, and uh, we'll see you next time. Be well.